Welcome to the Bethel Church Austin Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this sermon by a special guest speaker. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit BethelATX.com. Hello, please, please sit down. Well, good evening. How is everyone? Good. It's so good to be back. I know Candace spoke last night and she's already said greeting, but for those of you that weren't here last night, you missed an amazing message from my wife. I have known her for a long time, and that was the best I've ever heard her preach. I told her, I, we got back to the hotel, and I just was like, this is why it was the best. So if you were not here last night, I encourage you, get on the podcast or find a way to get it. It was just awesome. But it is really good to be back. Uh, we were here last year at the launch and uh, had so much fun being here. We've been bragging about you guys for a year now. And so we're going to go back and brag about you for another year. And super excited about Chris coming. And I think that's going to be fun. How many have never been in the same room as Chris Valentin? A number of you. Awesome. Well, make sure you're here because he's going to embarrass you in some way. He's going to... No, I'm kidding. No, he's... He's such a gift to us and such a gift to the church and such a gift, honestly, to anybody that gets near him. I'm so glad he's coming. Such a good idea to have him come and to do your one-year one year anniversary. But I do have a request. I, I would ask that you would do something to embarrass him. I don't know what that is, but you have about a month and a half to figure that out. But, just, but don't tell him I told you. Just, just do it. So I'm kidding. I want to share a quick testimony before we jump into the Word tonight. This January, earlier this year, we, we have a healing school. Randy Clark comes to Reading, and we do about two or three days with the School of Ministry, and then we add about two or three days to do anybody else that wants to come that's not a student in our school. And we rent out the Civic Auditorium, our convention center, and we pack it out. And this year, Randy had to fly home on a Friday night to be at one of his grandkid uh, ballet recital. And so dad, dad spoke, my dad spoke that night, and then at the end of the night, we got up and just did words of knowledge. And many of you know this, and in case you don't, I've been, we've been going after autism, Asperger's, dyspraxia, dyslexia, been going after that. In fact, last time we were here, we went after that here, and we had several of you just share testimonies. And I'm, I'm hearing continuation of those testimonies, even just being here the last few days. And so Friday night in January, we gave words of knowledge about that. And one thing that's been fascinating is most of the miracles have happened as someone has stood in proxy for someone else. Now, stuff happened with people that are actually present that have any of those conditions, but most of the time, someone stands for someone else. So on this particular night in January, this man stood up for uh, his friend who is 33 years old and lives in Virginia. And it was late night, Friday night, our time, so it's 1 and 2 in the morning in Virginia. And so he stood in for somebody's friend, 33 years old. I figure it was severely autistic or severely severe Asperger's. I can't remember which one. But I do know this, the person had never spoken in his life. He's 33 years old, still lives at home with his, with his mom. So this guy in California who visited Randy Clark Healing School in Reading stood up for his friend. Well, he came back two weeks later, this man who stood in proxy, he came back for another conference, and he found me on a Sunday and said, Eric, I need to tell you what happened last month when I was here for Randy Clark. I stood up on Friday night when you guys were given words of knowledge about autism and Asperger's, etc. He said, I stood for a friend of mine who's 33 years old in Virginia, gave me the whole story, that he'd not been able to speak his entire life, 33 years old, still lived with his mom. When I stood for him, I sent, I sent the family a text 
Well, the next morning, Saturday morning in Virginia, this 33-year-old man wakes up, and the only way that he can communicate is he writes stuff down, and that's how you communicate with him. He went into his mom's room and wrote on a piece of paper and said, Mom, I can talk. And the first word out of his mouth was, Mom, I love you. Isn't that incredible? Come on. Come on. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. That's right. And we've just been, it's been increasing. So I want to encourage you, continue to go. I know we go after all sickness, all conditions, all situations, but there is a momentum on dyspraxia, dyslexia, autism, Asperger's. And I want to encourage you, let's keep going after this. And in fact, if you have someone in your family or someone that you know that had any of those conditions, stand to your feet. Let's do it right now. Let's take care of some business. Let's just pray for anyone in this room. And if you have that condition, then please stand as well. But if you want to stand for someone else, let's stand in proxy. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we say yes and amen to all your promises. We say yes and amen to the momentum that has been building for the last year of increase in this area of Asperger's, autism, dyspraxia, dyslexia, all the surrounding condition. We say no more. We cancel that in Jesus' name. If they're present in the room or if they're standing for someone else, wherever they are at, we're asking for your healing, the power of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ. We completely bring healing to their body right now in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. So we cancel this assignment and we say no more. We say no more autism, no more Asperger's, no more dyspraxia, dyslexia, no more, no more ramifications of head trauma, none of that stuff. We say no more in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. 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 If you stood for somebody else, I'm going to ask you to do something. Get your phone out and text the family right now and tell them what just happened. Just tell them what you did. You stood, for, you stood for them. And then I want you to ask them a real simple question. If anything happened right now or anything happened in the next hour or so to text you back and tell you. And if anything has happened, even if it's subtle or if it's dramatic, I want you to come find one of us after the service and tell it. I have screenshots of other people's phones from the text messages that have come back during the meeting. And so I want to, if anything's happening out there, please, uh, please let me know. So. All right, if you have your Bible, why don't you get it open to the book of Matthew. I'll give you an address in just a little bit. Well, a couple of weeks ago, an app came out that um, basically tells you how old you're going to look later in life. And I found out how old I'm going to look when I'm, when I'm like 130. I have hair, which I'm actually really happy about. I'm, not, I'm looking at the trajectory. I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to have any hair by then, but apparently this app tells me I'm going to have some hair. And I have no idea what's going on with my neck. What I do know is I will be applying more sunscreen for the rest of my life right to this region. Someone the other day said, Eric, you look like an eagle. And I said, I can, I can live with that. Somehow my nose got, my nose got more pointy and beakish. So, <laughs> anyways, 
We live in very fascinating times right now. We live, we live in such an interesting time in human history. It's going to be so fun for historians and sociologists 100, 200 years from now to talk about this year, this, this season that we live in, the, the, the reality of the world that we live in. I mean, there's stuff happening all over the world, beautiful and ugly. I mean, we got stuff happening in the Middle East that deserves our attentions and deserves our prayers. We have stuff happening in your own city of Austin that demands our attention and our, our engagement in what God wants to do in this city. We live in, we live in very interesting times, and tonight I want to just take some time to unpack something that is very dear to my heart. It's something I take very seriously, and I know you will too. And my goal is to give you hope and to give you uh, a picture of what's coming, of what's happening. And, and we actually have called, we are called, and we have the opportunity to thrive in today's environment, in today's culture. And depending on what, you know, what your background is or what your experiences are, everybody is saying this is the worst time in human history or this is, this is the best time in human history. And it's a little bit of all the above, to be honest with you. But because we're believers, because we've said yes to Jesus, we believe that God wants to show up and that there's a great awakening happening and there's one that's even coming that's even greater. We believe that revival is going to sweep the streets of our cities and sweep the streets of nation. And honestly, we should be waking up every day saying this, this could be the day. This could be the day. That's, that's the kingdom that you and I are a part of. We're not a part of a kingdom that says it can't happen. We're part of the kingdom that says today is the day for a great revival, a great awakening. That, that's the life that you and I have said yes to. We did not say to a life of escaping this world. We said a life, yes to a life of actually going into the world. That's, that's what we said yes to. So if you said yes to Jesus, you're thinking you punched your ticket, you have been greatly mistaken. You've been greatly mistaken. You said yes to Jesus because you believe that he could show up right here and now. Not just in the four walls of a comfortable air-conditioned building, but he would show up in the darkest, most broken places in the streets of our cities and nation. That's what you said yes to because you believed it was possible. Maybe you're here tonight and you've lost some hope. You've lost some drive. You've lost some passion. And you find yourself migrating away from what, what's happening out there. And you found yourself migrating into only a Christian bubble, only a Christian community. Well, tonight I, would, I hope our bubbles get popped a little bit because you and I said yes. You and I are at our best when we are on the front lines of conflict. You and I are at our best when we are confronted with the impossible. History has taught us that the Christian, that the church is at its best when it's on the front lines of conflict and it's the most cultural complex times in human history. That's what history has taught us. I'm telling you, we live in that moment right now. We live in a moment right now where everything is being deconstructed and redefined right before our very own it our very own eyes. I want to read you a quick story before we jump into tonight. The first great awakening was a movement that began with a group of Oxford students, one of whom was George Whitfield, led by John and Charles Wesley, who gathered a small group of students together to study the Greek classics and the scriptures. Their unorthodox zeal for God made them an object of ridicule among their peers at Oxford, and they were derisively labeled the Holy Club. It was this group of students at one of the premier institutions in the world that encountered God in a radical way and ignited the first great awakening movement. These students would later become leading figures in the Moravian, Anglican, and Methodist churches. The ability of that movement to spread was the result of signs and wonders and the social networks that were available to them at Oxford and because of their affiliation with it. 
Tim Keller says this, Christians are unique citizens in society because they are formed by the upside-down kingdom of God. They move out into the world as self-sacrificers rather than self-actualizers. The title of the message today is Upside-Down Kingdom of God. We have to remember that when we said yes to Jesus, we did not say yes to disattaching ourselves. We said yes to going into the world. But what's fascinating about Jesus, if you can allow me just to kind of unpack something relating to the upside-down kingdom of God, and I'm going to take Tim Keller's phrase because it fits what I want to communicate tonight. But we have to understand that when we said yes to Jesus, we said yes to a very different way of doing life. For some of us, the exact opposite of how we've done everything. And it's, it's really intriguing when you, when you begin to study the teachings of Jesus. And, and you and I, you know, we, we have a lot to wrestle with. And it doesn't matter what culture, what nation you're from, but you and I have to realize that we are underneath the pressures of a culture that we live within. And there, there's an interesting conversation among sociologists right now. They're, they're saying we were kind of in the, in the later, deeper stages of postmodernism. They're actually saying right now we live in what's called post-Christian which is an interesting phrase, and some of, some of us don't like it, some of us do, and I think an interchangeable phrase would be post-Christendom. We actually have, we're moving away from something that we're all very familiar with. You know, what, what you might ask, well, what is post-Christian? What is post-Christendom? The, the short answer to this is it's a kingdom without a king. And we live in a society, I mean, for some of us who have been in church most of our life or a good chunk of our life, we have seen in our own lifetime some of the most drastic changes. It felt like as a church, as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, we were the majority. And in our own lifetime, it's like we walked out our door one day and we realized we're no longer the majority, we're actually the minority. And this is what's happening in culture right now. We're confronted with this like, wow, not everyone believes there's a God anymore. Not everyone had any value for Christian truth or Christian beliefs. And I know in my own lifetime, I've experienced like, man, everywhere you went, you'd run into, whether they were a Jesus follower or not, everyone has some respect and admiration for the Bible and for God. And now we walk out our front door and it's actually the, quite the opposite. So we find ourselves in a very unique situation. And some of us are trying to cling to the past, and I wish we could go back to the way it was. I wish we could go back to, and for many of us, as American, we actually believe America is a Christian society. And honestly, in many ways it is, but at the same time, I actually believe the Lord is taking us into a more pure vision, version of what he's actually talked about. Do you know that we're not called to Christianize society? We're actually called to bring the kingdom to society, two, two very different things. And I feel the Lord's actually going to be, he's been teaching us and he's going to continue to teach us what that means. And for some of us, we've been trying to Christianize society and God's saying, that's not what I'm after. I'm after bringing the kingdom. So we have to understand that the Lord is actually redoing things and, and there are things at play right now. So we live in a, a very fascinating time in human history. It's, it's a great opportunity. Now you might be sitting there going, I don't like the climate of culture right now. And I'll be honest with you, it scares me as well. But at the same time, I'm incredibly hopeful. And I'm incredibly excited because God seems to be raising up followers of Jesus that say yes to the way that he did things. But to understand that when Jesus walked the earth, he did things very, very differently. Very differently. We have to understand that. This is important to understand. And, and I, want, I want to challenge you. If, we, if, if you feel like you don't know how to thrive in today's culture, guess what? Jesus actually teaches us how to thrive. He actually teaches us how to walk. He teaches us how to thrive in today's climate, in today's culture. 
What's fascinating about the way of Jesus, I mean, let's talk about human dignity. Let's talk about the value of human life. Let's just take that one thing alone. Out of all the major world religions, Christianity is the only one that has value for humanity. Now, if the other ones start talking about value for humanity, it's because they've been influenced. But biblical thought, Jesus' followers are the, is the only, our faith is the only faith that has any value for humanity. Because in Genesis 1, it says this, God made man in the image of God, and he said it was good. I read a story about a Christian who was walking the streets of India. I think it was, I forget which city in India, but walking in one of the major cities. And he's walking down the road, and he sees this man lying in the gutter. And this man is he's dying before his very own eyes. His, he said his flesh was rotting, and, and he could tell this man's not going to make it much farther. You could tell this man had been living on the streets for a good portion, if not his whole life. And this Christian man is looking at this Indian man lying in the gutter and thinking, why is nobody helping this guy? Why is nobody helping this guy? He's dying in the streets right now. And so he began to pull some locals aside and said, how come no one's helping this guy? And they said, oh, because in his previous life, he must have done something bad. And this is his karma. He was reincarnated and he's being punished. So no one wants to interrupt the karma. You see, you have to understand that you and I say yes to Jesus who had the value for human life. That alone is the premise of how we interact with culture and society. And what's fascinating, you can tell when you're getting more secular is when you begin to lose value for humanity. You can tell when your kingdom is the wrong kingdom is when your value and you create distance from you and humanity that you actually stop caring. I want to challenge you, this is at the core of the kingdom, that the value for humanity, and humanity had dignity. It didn't matter what state they're in, what condition you find them in, you will carry this value because God made them in his image, and he said, this is good. We come from a very different kingdom. We said yes to a very different kingdom. You know, I think... I think we often know that verse in the Bible that says the uneducated, uneducated men have turned the world upside down. There's a scripture where the, the religious leaders said, these are the men that turned the world upside down. And what, who are they referring to? They're referring to the disciples. They said, these disciples of Jesus have turned the world upside down. And they say they're uneducated. I'll be honest with you, that is actually a false statement. You have to understand, in, in, in Middle Eastern culture, in Jewish culture of that day in first century, when you were called a rabbi, Jesus was actually given the title of a rabbi. And the word disciple in Hebrew of Talmudim, and that actually means this. I want to read you the definition. I want you to understand something. This is really important. Talmudim means that a plural Hebrew noun meaning disciple in its truest sense, those who leave the family to study and follow the ways of their teacher, the rabbi. They study not only to learn what their teacher knows, but to become a type of man their teacher is. Actually, if you read it even farther, it said you start dressing like them. You start walking like them. You start talking like them. This is why the Apostle Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So the whole idea of being a disciple of Jesus was to take on the character, the system, the thoughts, the dress, the walk, the talk of who you're following. So to say that the disciples were uneducated was an inaccurate statement. It was said out of jealousy and insecurity because they were legitimately turning the world upside down. To say that they were uneducated was a complete slam on Jesus' ability to raise up 11, 12 men. One didn't work out, but 11 of them to change human history. 
is to say Jesus failed at what he did. Are you following me? So for them to say yes to Jesus and for Jesus to teach them as a rabbi to raise up disciples to turn the world upside down. Now, what's even more fascinating, we have to understand the context that Jesus decides to step into. Now, we know that God is outside of time and space, so I don't know how God waits because he really doesn't wait because he's not limited by a clock. So somehow he's able to look at the scope of time and space, and he's trying to figure out when am I going to send my son Jesus into this context? So I, he, I don't know if he's waiting. I'm not sure how this works. I don't understand. I don't think any of us understand this. But at some point, it, you know, it would have been something if he said, Jesus, why don't you go into the era of Solomon when King Solomon was at his peak? Right, let's, let's send you there. Let's send you in the time, the golden age of Israel. And imagine if Jesus showed up in the golden age of Israel. It would have been, it probably would have been awesome, but it wouldn't have been as effective because this was the most peaceful, prosperous time in Israel's history. And it would have been amazing, but we wouldn't have learned how to live in a culture and a society that is so anti-God. And so somehow God said, no, let's not go here. I want to send you in this time in human history. And he decides to send Jesus or Jesus decides to come to earth during the Roman Empire. Now, we have to talk about the Roman Empire for a little bit because to understand the context that Jesus is teaching his teachings in brings way more gravity to the situation than we often realize. Western church has so watered down the phrases and teachings of Jesus to tattoos and T-shirts and bumper stickers that we actually have lost the revolutionary process behind these statements. The statement that Jesus made aren't meant to be cute. They are meant to turn the world upside down. So when Jesus was born, he was actually born during Caesar Augustus' reign. Now, Caesar Augustus' original name was Octavian. Now, Octavian was an adopted son to Julius Caesar. Now, if you study empires, you study all the empires in the world, most people will tell us that Julius Caesar was the most famous emperor of any emperor of any empire that ever walked the face of the earth. The Roman Empire was so vast, it took over a good chunk of the planet. And Julius Caesar was assassinated by his own senate. The crazy story. So he gets assassinated. So Octavian, who the adopted son of Julius Caesar, stepped to the throne. He becomes emperor. But what's fascinating is that because Julius Caesar died and they actually deified him, they made him a god. And because Julius Caesar was now dead, he's now a god, they thought, well, if Octavian is his son, then he must be the son of God. So they actually changed Octavian's name to Augustus. And you know who decided to change the name? Was the Senate. The Senate were looking for a name that meant to be worshipped. And Augustus means that, to be worshipped. And so now Augustus is called the Son of God. He is called the Savior of the Roman people. He is called the one that will bring the gospel to all the world. Why do you think the gospel of Luke uses those phrases interchangeably? Because while the world was looking at Augustus as the Savior, as the Son of God, and the one that brings the gospel, Luke said, no, 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 it's this man over here, and his name is Jesus. You have to understand that when the early church, the theologian tells us that for the early church to say Jesus is our Lord and Savior, it was the most radical way of telling the Roman Empire, you are not my Lord and Savior, this man is. 
in the face of culture to make that statement. This is why Jesus said, guys, you're going to be persecuted because you're connected to me. Wow. Yeah. We have to understand that the Roman Empire was, was not a pretty culture. It had no Christian root. We think living in today's times was tough. Imagine living in a context where there's no Christian root system at all. And Jesus finds a way to teach people, this is how you live in this time. Not just to make it, but to turn it upside down. So when he begins to teach, he's actually undermining in a subversive way, saying this is how you compose yourself. This is how you carry yourself. We don't run away. We actually go in. So Jesus was able to stand in the midst of a Roman contest. He was cornered day after day. One time they come to him and said, hey, Jesus, do you pay taxes? And he's holding the coin. And on the coin, what is, who's on the coin? Caesar. He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar." but give to God what is God. What is he saying? He's saying, you have the image of God on you. Give your life to him, but give this coin to him. What is he doing? He is undermining a world system that does not match the kingdom that he comes from. You have to understand that you and I live in a very unique time in human history. Imagine, imagine being alive in such a time as that. And Jesus begins to do his teaching. Why don't you go to Matthew chapter 5. I want to read you a few things. And as you're turning there, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus went through 40 days and 40 nights of temptation. He's out in the wilderness. Most of us should know the story by now. So when he comes out of the wilderness of 40 days fasting, his first message was this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So by the time you get to chapter 5, you run into this reality that Jesus has now had gathered a multitude of people. People are beginning to flock to Jesus. So he sits them down and he preaches chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7 are actually many, including myself, many people say this is the greatest sermon ever preached ever. Kind of help when you're Jesus. I mean, whenever you're Jesus and whatever you do, it's always going to be the best. But legitimately, if you, take, if you have nothing to read in Scripture, if you are bored reading the Bible, read chapter 5, read chapter 6, and chapter 7 for the rest of your life, and you will find yourself a beautiful human being by the end of your life. Because what Jesus covered in these three chapters in the greatest sermon of all will cut every nasty corner off of your life. It will take care of every dark part of your soul. It will... It will Take care of business. So I want you to read this with me because I want you to understand something. This is literally the first word out of Jesus' mouth to reveal a kingdom he has come from. So go to verse 3 of chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you who revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now go up to back verse 3. I want, you to high, I want you to know some of the language that Jesus is using. Remember, we're talking about a Roman Empire context. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, they'll be comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the meek. 
Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger. Verse 7, blessed are those who are merciful. Verse 8, the pure in heart. Verse 9, blessed are those who are peacemakers. He begins to use this language that is opposite of the human response to the context. They say Ephesus was designed around the temple that was dedicated to Caesar Augustus. They made him an idol of worship. They actually, before he died, they considered him a deity. And they say that one, one, theolo- or one scholar tells us there was so much worship and adoration going towards Caesar Augustus, they said there was no time to worship any other god. We're talking about a culture that is completely bent on worshiping a man, a human being. Now go to verse 38 of the same chapter. Look what happens here. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a two for a two. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you in your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you. Do not turn away. Now, those verses right there, how many have found that challenging even within your community of friends? Like when they're a jerk to you, you don't want to let them continue to be a a jerk to you. Why? Because it's human nature to respond back. It's called the law of retaliation. You hurt me, I hurt you. This is how the world system works. You You take my eye out, I take your eye out. You take my tooth out, I take your tooth out. This is human world system response. And what's fascinating is we have limited this to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember, Jesus is talking to a group of people that are living within the Roman Empire context. When you were a Roman citizen or you were a subject in the Roman Empire, whatever the empire wanted, you had to do it. So, for example, if a soldier came along and said, I need you to do this task for me, carry this and walk with me. And Jesus said, if that soldier made you walk a mile, I want you to walk two. And if he wants your cloak, a jacket, give him your cloak as well. And what was that? That was the one you used to sleep at night to keep you warm. And they slap you on the cheek, let them slap the other cheek. What is Jesus doing? He's telling them how to function in a Roman Empire context. And we've reduced it down to how to get along with our wives and our husbands. And Jesus like, no, no, it's much deeper than that. When you step out into culture, when they want more from you and you don't want to give it, you give it. When they want to hurt you, you turn the other cheek. What did Jesus do? He's teaching the ways of the kingdom. And what's fascinating, they don't even know if this works yet. (laughs) You and I are 2,000 years later going, it's working really well. I mean, we're sitting in a room today because of these teachings. They had no context, no history, no situation to go, did this actually work? What kind of manual is this? And Jesus is saying to submit ourselves to something that is evil and demonic. He's saying, actually, go low in the context. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's very different than how the world systems function. So imagine hearing this for the first time. Jesus, you're telling me to be a peacemaker with someone that doesn't want peace. Jesus, you're telling me to go an extra mile when I don't even want to go one mile. You're telling me to do all these things, and they had no way of knowing it's true. So when the disciples said yes to Jesus, we're talking about they, it cost them everything. It was a massive decision. So here we are. We have these teachings of Jesus. We have an upside-down kingdom. We're being introduced to this, and I want to challenge you. We seem to apply this to a lot of areas in our life. Let's take, let's take the fivefold, for example. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talked about the apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist. 
And what's fascinating, in a Western Christian context, we've made it a choice. It's like it's a multiple choice. We read that and think, man, I know which one I want. I want the one that is the most popular one. That, that's the one I want. And we've actually made the fivefold a corporate ladder. And we're, depending on what stream of the church you're in, whatever one's on the top, that's the one everyone wants. It's always the one that has the most Instagram followers. Oh, the apostle does. I got that. And, we, and every stream has one that's always on the bottom. It's either the pastor or the teacher. That's my observation in different streams. Like, who's the least powerful one? It's the teacher. Well, that's not the one. We've treated it like this. I get to choose. You have to understand, you didn't get to choose it. It's a gift from God. It's actually something that God chooses to give to you. But yet, we've treated it like a corporate ladder. We said, I want that one. I want that one. It wasn't a choice. There's no ladder involved here. In fact, if you need to use a ladder, it's to help someone else get to where they're supposed to go. You and I actually are supposed to get a shovel and go deeper. But yet, because of a, because of a response of living in a Western context, we thought, how do I become more powerful? What's the most powerful one? Because I'm going to overtake everything. And Jesus is like, no, guys, that's not how we function. That is not what we do. We go extra miles. We give them our extra cloaks. We've turned the other cheek. Jesus is introducing, this is, some of you are getting squirmy right now because you realize that you're living life trying to overpower everything that you're stuck in. In Jesus' life, that is not the way of the kingdom. But understand, Jesus was no pushover as well. What's fascinating about, about Instagram, you know, they say today, I don't think this generation's struggle is the prosperity gospel. I think this generation's struggle is the popularity gospel. We actually have built, we actually have built a mindset. We built a world system around popularity. It's, it's, it's actually, there's an article that came out in BBC. I read it a couple weeks ago, and it said, the number one reason for the mental health deterioration in teenagers in the UK right now is Instagram. They said Instagram is the leading cause of mental health deteriorating in teenagers right now. Now, how many understand it's not Instagram's not the problem? Instagram exposes a value system that is not of the kingdom. So if you're bashing Instagram, you're making a great mistake. It's actually exposing something that you and I need to deal with. And Instagram right now, they said that they're experimenting, I think, in seven different countries that I'm aware of. I think I'm hoping they roll it out even farther. But they're actually experimenting because it's playing such a role in the deteriorating mental health of teenagers. They're actually removing the ability to see how many likes somebody has on their photo. Could you imagine telling someone that live 100 years ago, hey, you know how you become really like, famous and like, make a lot of money in 2019 if someone double taps your photo? First of all, they say, well, what is a photo? <laughs> and second of all, what in the world is that? It's fascinating that we live in a world system right now that your value, you feel loved, you feel known when someone simply double taps your photo. So Instagram is actually exploring right now, removing the ability to see how many, how many likes someone else's photo gets because we get into this like, well, they got more likes than me. And we start doing that. And all of a sudden, our mental health, our emotional health, our spiritual health is dependent upon how many times someone double taps your photo. This is the world system that you and I are in. And don't, don't sit here tonight and say, I don't have a problem with that. But yet you pull out Instagram 100 times a day to see what the latest number of likes you have. 
if you want freedom from it, you have to admit you have a problem first. Just admit it. Just say, you know what? I actually really do care how many likes I get. And then guess what? Jesus can help get, get you free from that. Are you guys with me tonight? We live in a world system, but that's not the system we said signed up for. We have come from a very different kingdom. And Jesus, I believe, is drawing us back to what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus. He's actually asking us, come back. Let's do it the way I've taught in scriptures. And some of you have been feeling this theme of discipleship. How many of you actually, like, man, the word discipleship just, just keeps coming up. I think because we realize we've lost our way. He's saying, come back. And when you say yes to me, this is how we're going to go about it. So we go to the fivefold and we treat it like this corporate ladder. I want to be the apostle. No, you actually don't want to be the apostle. The apostle is actually the worst one. It's actually the one that all 11 apostles in Scripture were killed horrendously. They were either boiled alive or they decapitated or crucified. Peter refused to be crucified like Jesus, so he begged them to crucify him upside down. That's what it means to be an apostle. And yet we've made it this power struggle. Like, man, I, man, whoever the most powerful one, that's the one. Whoever gets the most respect, that's the one. Tell you what, when you begin to think and approach Scripture that way and approach it from a power perspective, you're operating under another kingdom. In Ephesians, it actually says that the church is built on Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and then the house is built. What's the point? It's an upside-down structure. And you and I look at it like, man, who's on top? Apostles and prophets. It's actually the apostles and prophets are on the very bottom. And everything is built from up to that point. Are you following me tonight? So make sure you're aspiring to the right things. Make sure, make sure your heart is set on the right things. In Psalms 100 it says this. It says, come into his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. It's fascinating that we often come into worship, and I'm going to use the corporate context other than an example. Sometimes we come in and we go, man, I hope they play that one song. If they don't play that one song, then this is not going to be a good night for me. We predicate our joy on someone else playing the right song. Or we come in and we come in with this idea that, man, I hope, man, I hope something happened tonight so I can be thankful or I can come in with praise. And the Bible says, no, come in already thankful. That's the way of the kingdom. You come in cultivating a heart of praise. No one goes on a date with somebody and doesn't get dressed up for it. But yet we're coming in trying to date Jesus that we've done nothing to prepare our heart. We come in like, man, Jesus, would you do something for me to make me feel good so then I'll be happy? And we've created a gospel that is dependent on God doing something in our life. And so we walk around depressed because, like, Jesus didn't do anything for me. He's not, he hasn't talked to me in a week. He hasn't answered all my prayers. And we predicate our entire discipleship, our entire emotional, spiritual, mental state on him doing something. That's actually not how the kingdom works. Before you ever come into the room, cultivate your heart of thanksgiving. Get dressed. Put on that cologne, that perfume. Wear your best shoes, your best pants, your best shirt. Come in cultivating a heart of thanksgiving. Then you come into his presence. That's how the kingdom works. You see, you and I, we, we are part of the kingdom that you build culture in you so it changes the culture outside of you. 
a world system says the culture outside of me or the external reality changes my inside. This is why statements like, if I just had more money, if I just had that job, those thought processes are world system thoughts. It's all about what's happened on the outside changes me on the inside. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. In the kingdom, it's what's going on on the inside affects the outside. So I want to challenge you that we live in an inside-out world, not an outside-in world. So if you're waking up every day thinking, man, if I just had this, if this only happened, if this happened, then I'd be happy. Then guess what? You will be depressed and discouraged for the rest of your life. But if you can learn to cultivate this thanksgiving in your heart before there's ever a reason to give thanks, that's the kingdom. That's the kingdom. I remember when my daughters were really young. They were like, I think, five and three or four and two, and they were just cute, chubby cheeks and blonde heads, blonde hair. And we had a house that had a big window on the front of the house, and I would park my, that's where the driveway was. And I remember coming home from the office, and whenever I pull in the driveway, they, I would see their heads, and they'd be on my couch, which is right, right underneath the window, and I see their head jumping up and down. I couldn't hear them because they're inside the house, but they're jumping up and down. I see these blonde hair, just chubby cheeks, and it was the cutest thing in the world, and they're yelling, Daddy, Daddy. I couldn't hear them because they're inside the house. How many of you think I sat on my truck and said, Hold on, I'll be there in a few minutes? <laughs> no, why? Because as they were praising me, it compelled me to show up in their life. And some, that's how the kingdom works. In Psalm, they said he's pra- he was enthroned on the praises of his people. Are you following me here? This is, this is how the kingdom works. It's very different than how the world system works. Very different how the world system works. You know, Paul, Paul, the apostle Paul, he says, I am content in Christ. Powerful statement. I am content in Christ. And what's fascinating, the word content, he actually stole that from uh, a group of philosophers of that day called Stoics. He actually stole that word from him. He stole it and redeemed it. And what he was saying is, in his day, there was a group of philosophers that called Stoics, and they were known to be self-sufficient. They were known to be the ones that, it didn't matter what was happening, they were the same. And they had a certain belief system you can go study. It's pretty, pretty interesting. But he stole the word. They are self-sufficient. They don't need something to happen. They don't need an external reality. Nothing has to change in their life. They will always be the same. And therefore, they got the name Stoics. And, and they had this word content. And Paul said, I'm content. He stole the word from that philosophy and redeemed it and said, I am content in Christ. What is he saying? He's not saying I'm content that Jesus is going to do something for me. I am content in that he exists. If you want to go to the depths of the kingdom, figure that one out. How much of us, how much of our joy... How much of our success in life is predicated on if Jesus does something for us? Now, I want to be very clear. Is Jesus going to do something in your life? Absolutely. He loved it. It's his hobby. But I wonder, I wonder if we can learn to learn to be content simply because he is. We can learn, we can learn to be content, full of joy, full of happiness, simply because he exists. Not because, oh, Jesus, when you answer my prayer, when you, when you do this, there's something about the ways of the kingdom that I want to challenge us. We've got to learn in today's culture. 
If you want to thrive in today's time, if you want to be successful in the kingdom context in today's culture, then follow the teachings of Jesus. Understand them. I know that sounds elementary. I know that sounds, well, that's what I've been doing. But sometimes we've read it through the lens of a power struggle. How do I get more powerful in today's culture? And Jesus says, oh, no, we actually go lower. We actually go very differently. I believe God's looking for a generation of new storytellers. I believe he's actually looking for a generation of storytellers that will tell a very different story. You know, we actually live in a time where I believe the gospel, it's easier to preach the gospel today than it was 20, 30 years ago. Because 20, 30 years ago, everyone thought they were good. It's hard to convince someone that thinks they're good they need Jesus. Some of you didn't get that. That's okay. <laughs> Fish are actually jumping in the boat today, and they were not jumping in the boat 20 years ago. Chris Overstreet was sharing this story a couple years ago. He was at a gas station. It's pouring down rain. It's just dumping, dumping rain. And, you know, they're under the cover. He's pumping his car. And the guy at the next pump, uh, Chris yelled at him, hey, man, it's really raining. And the guy's like, man, it is pouring rain. And he's sitting there pumping his gas. And then Chris looked back over and said, would you like to know Jesus and accept him into your life? <laughs> and the guy's pumping his car. And he goes, actually, I think I would. <laughs> and he lead him to the Lord. Seriously, we live in a time where fish are jumping in the boat. I actually believe the darker, the more broken culture gets, the hungrier people are for liberty and freedom. This is why we cannot, we cannot remove ourselves from the equation of culture. We cannot go hide and cornered and wait it out. We have to put ourselves on the front lines of culture, on the front lines of our street. We have to be in the conversation, not a fly on the wall. We have to be in the conversation because this is the time where the kingdom will be beautifully expressed if we can learn to tell a different story. John Quincy Adams says, he who tells the best story wins. <laughs> Do you know that when you pray for the sick and they get healed, you just told the greatest story? Do you know that when you, when you lead someone to the Lord, you just introduce them to the greatest narrative ever? I'm telling you, God is looking for a church that will tell another story. We live in a day and age right now where God is looking for people to tell a different story. You might be like, well, what are they going to say? Well, find out. Find out. So I want to challenge you tonight before we, before we wrap up. I feel like the Lord is actually commissioning some of you to say yes to Jesus in a new way. You said yes to him in a certain context, but you realize you've been trying to get to the top and not realizing Jesus wants us to go lower. You've been trying to apply the kingdom principle through a Western culture mindset of power, control. How do I get more? And how do I get more double tapped? And we've applied our thinking to how the kingdom functions. Jesus is like, we need to remove all of that. While his disciples were trying to get to the throne of Roman Empire, Jesus was headed to a very different throne. Remember when the disciples' mom came to Jesus, hey, Jesus, when you get to the throne, can my boy sit on your right and your left? They were driven by this idea that how do we get to the top of this world? And Jesus is like, oh, no, no. There's a very different kingdom. 
John Tyson, who was with us a few months ago, if you don't know him, he's a pastor in New York City, become a friend of ours and a friend of our house. He said, Christian, when we look at culture, we either condemn culture, we either critique culture, we either copy culture, or we create culture. Let me say that again. We condemn it. We critique it. We try to find some spiritual meaning within culture. Or we copy it. I came from a generation that loved copying culture. I grew up in the church, and so Christian music was always special. <laughs> it was, um, how many know about Petra? No, I love Petra. I'm not, I'm not dogging anybody. Now, if you've never heard any of these bands I'm about to mention to you, it's okay. You, you didn't miss much. You did not miss. You missed our history, but you didn't miss much. Uh, DeGarmo and Key, any DeGarmo? Okay, the few of you. The hands always get less as they go on. How about Carmen? <laughs> Carmen. But let's be really honest. At, at the PK, it was always like it's not good enough. It's, it's like a knockoff of the real version. And, and so, you know, this is where, you know, I, uh, I had hidden cassette tapes in my bedroom <laughs> that my friends helped me out when I, uh, I had this certain spot inside of my bed. I would hide my cassette tapes of secular music. <laughs> and my parents never knew I had it still to this day. <laughs> See, I came from a generation that was copying culture, trying to copy it, trying to like take it and revise it. You, we're not actually called to condemn it, critique it, or copy it. We're called to create it. We're actually called to create culture within a world system. Why do you think Jesus was able to protect an adulterous woman in that moment in Mark chapter 8? Why do you think he was able to do that? Because he was creating a new culture. He was creating a new context. He said, this is how it works. And once he removed the religious spirit from the equation, the political spirit from the equation, then the kingdom was able to happen in that context. Jesus was brilliant at doing this. He was able to take a mustard seed. He was able to pick up a little mustard seed. Oh, let me talk, teach you about faith. What would Jesus do? And all of Jesus' parables and teaching were modern, in his context, real-life examples. Imagine if you and I learned how to tell the story differently. What if we learned how to pick up the mustard seeds of our culture and say, let me teach you about faith. This is what the kingdom's like. And then Jesus thought, you know what? What if, what if I pick the Samaritans? What if I pick them and make them the hero of the story? Because everyone hated the Samaritans. So Jesus said, well, I'm going to make them the hero of the story. What was he doing? He was offending mindsets. He was offending systems of thought that violated how the kingdom worked. Do you know that when Jesus offends you, he, it's actually an expression of his grace? Some of us actually need to be offended a little bit more. Two of you laughed. Some of us actually need to be offended more by God. Because we're so stuck in our ways. We're so stuck in how we think everything works. The only way to get you to wake up is you get deeply offended. So the next time you get offended at God doing something, just know that that's an opportunity to step forward. Or it's an opportunity to get more entrenched and to go backwards. Because what he wants to do is he wants to shock your system to wake you up and say, there's another way of doing life. There's another way. This is how I work. So tonight... What I want to do, I want to pray for you. I'm going to wrap it up in just a moment. I felt tonight that some of us are being recommissioned and saying yes to Jesus all over again. 
We're saying yes to what he taught and how he taught and what the kingdom looks like. If, you, if this is resonating with, all, with you at all tonight, I want you to stand to your feet. You realize, my goodness, I have, been, I have been approaching it from a power perspective. How do I get more in control? And Jesus is actually saying, no, it's actually very different than that. If this is resonating with you at all, I want you to stand to your feet. I want to pray for you, and I want to commission you. I find this is actually somewhat of a commissioning service on some level. So stand to your feet if this is you. If I could, everyone close your eyes just, just so we can create a moment and a space right now. Father, I ask tonight at Bethel Austin, I pray for every person that is standing, that they would recognize that they are being recommissioned to be a disciple of Jesus. They're being recommissioned to represent an upside-down kingdom, to turn this kingdom of this world upside down. Father, I ask, as we are in a cultural center in America, in the city of Austin right now, Father, I ask that you would teach us how to live the life and walk the way that Jesus walked. How do we take this very interesting way of doing life? How do we turn the other cheek? How do we go the extra mile? How do we do this? Father, I ask for your grace and your wisdom to show us how to operate and walk in such a manner from this day on. And Father, teach us areas in our life, reveal to us any area in our life where we are so wrapped up in trying to become more popular or more powerful or more, more controlling in culture. Teach us how that's actually not what we're about. We're actually about the upside-down kingdom. And I pray for each person in this room that's standing that there would be a new operating system would be downloaded tonight. A brand new operating system. Not an update to the existing operating system, but a brand new operating system. And I pray for every person in this room that actually feels a tangible shift in their emotion, in their mind, and in their spirit tonight, recognizing, oh, I am so jacked to get to work tomorrow. I am so pumped to step outside of this building and represent the upside-down kingdom that we want to begin to walk and live the way that Jesus walked. And if they could be successful and thrive in a Roman culture, we know it's possible to do it in American Western context. And give us fire, give us the passion, and that we wake up in the morning realizing this could be the day of the greatest awakening revival to ever hit our nation and our cities. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit BethelATX.com.